This podcast is a project of the Climate Designers Network. Hey, this is Eric. Welcome to the last official episode to round out our theme for season three. We do still have our back to school episode next week, focused on teaching and practicing life-centered design. So don't put away your headphones for the season just yet. But this final episode is one I hoped would round out a really awesome season talking to women leading the way on climate action. We started with Jamie Alexander from Drawdown Labs tell us that every job is a climate job, or how we put it, every designer is a climate designer. Everything going forward on your job will have climate involved. So no matter what your title is, if it has sustainability in it or not, you can make an impact on your job with a climate ethos. We also learned this season that we have the solutions now. I'll repeat myself. We have the solutions now to fight our climate crisis. We just need the willpower to pick them up and use them. In our case, we can design with these solutions or communicate about them in our work. And of course we can use them in that process as well. Think renewable energy. We also learn so much from women who have helped lift us up further by giving us assignments and projects we can do in our classroom or studio. Today, we have Liz Best and Nivi Achanta, who have been helping coach women utilize their frustrations, concerns, hope, creativity, culture, anxiety, and or dreams to encourage action through collaboration and in turn, elevate those involved into leaders as well. We all can be the helpers. I had a really great time speaking with Nivi and Liz in this episode, and they did a wonderful job driving home the points made by our other guests and giving us a super important lesson that we all have the potential to be leaders, especially climate leaders. I hope you enjoy their inspiring words and recognize that you too, to quote Nivi, can live your best life on this best planet with your best friends. Hi, I am Liz Best. I am the founder and CEO of the Girls Club Collective, an executive coach for women in sustainability and social impact, and the host of the Women Changing the World podcast. You can find me in real life, usually in Oakland, California, although sometimes up and down the West Coast. But you can find me online. Probably the best place to look is girlsclubcollective.co. That's girlsclubcollective.co. You can also find Girls Club Collective on LinkedIn and find me, Liz Best. That's L-I-S-B-E-S-T on LinkedIn. I'm Nivea Chanda. I'm the founder and CEO of Soapbox Project, where we help busy people turn their climate anxiety into action. And we do that through our friendly and until proven otherwise, world's most fun climate action community. When I am not hanging out online, you can find me in Seattle. And if you do want to find me online, I can be found at soapboxproject.org. I write all the newsletters, all of the bad puns that you might see. So if you're looking for a really easy and non-overwhelming way to take action and meet new friends, you can join us at soapboxproject.org. Nivy and Liz, welcome to Climify. 
this is the last official episode of season three. And I'm happy that both of you are here because I feel like both of you are going to do a great job of summarizing why this season happened based on the work that you do. So I'm, I'm excited that you're here. Excited to be here. It's such an honor. Thanks for having us. Yeah, no problem. Well, let's get into it. Let's, let's start with your journey, right? You, your journey into not only being into or interested in the, the climate movement, but also being a leader that helps to make more leaders. How did this all happen for you? Let's see. I think for me, my, really my interest in the climate movement started back in undergrad. I was in school at UC Santa Barbara, and I had to take a science class, even though I really didn't want to. And I discovered that the climate change course counted as a science class. And so I found myself sitting in Bren Hall learning about climate change. And it was one of those things where I just like remember reading like some scientific paper about what was happening to the planet and just not understanding how if in fact this was true, which I very much believed and believe that it is true. (laughs) I was like, how is everyone not working on this? (laughs) Yeah. Like, how is this not what every job is all about? And that was really when the seed was planted for me. I mean, I had no idea at that point in time, kind of like what types of careers there were in like the climate world, like what I might do after graduation. But I just distinctly remember like sitting in this tiny desk being like, how can anyone work on anything that's not this? And then I I had a brief stint as a journalist. I actually, I remember one of my first or early articles was a guide to the carbon rainbow. So I got to get a little bit deeper. What were you writing for? Is it the, the, the college newspaper or beyond that? I was writing for a publication that was at the time called Miller McCune that is today called the Pacific Standard. Uh, it's a, a publication based out of Santa Barbara after college. I was an editorial fellow there and their mission was to take academic research and translate it into public policy solutions. So got to somehow read a whole lot more science. We had a, a blog at the time called Today in Mice and also learn more about, about climate. And really the way that I, you know, eventually became a leader who is helping to make more leaders in the space is that after working in journalism briefly, I realized I needed health insurance and it was not likely to happen there. Uh, so the adulting to- world there. Relatable. Totally, totally. So I went back to school and that was where I discovered the world of what was then called corporate social responsibility. Hannah Jones from Nike, who's really like a leader in the field very early on, came and gave a career talk about what she did. And I was just like, oh my goodness, how do I become you one day when I grow up? Um, At the time, there were very few jobs in the field, but a lot of the advice I got was to basically like get a job or an internship somewhere and like volunteer my way into a role leading sustainability within an organization. So that was the the path that I took. I got really lucky and landed an internship at Qualcomm in their international government affairs department. And over the time I was there, I finagled my way into a full-time sustainability role. 
in the interest of not giving you my whole life story, I, I think that the thing that I really like, the thing that was really impressed upon me working in-house in a sustainability role and then later working as a consultant with Fortune 500 companies on sustainability, materiality, different issues in this realm, was that I really felt like so often we think of like what companies or organizations like should or shouldn't be doing as like if it's the right thing or there's a great business case or it's mm. the right thing and there's a great business case, then why isn't that what's happening? But what I saw was that so much more often than I ever would have thought, the reason that things are or are not happening came down to how effective a change agent, the person at the helm of these programs was and like whether they were able to convince the climate denier on the 10th floor that too much carbon is in fact a bad thing <laughs> and, <Yeah. laughs> and whether they were able to like you know make build relationships across an organization to get a goal adopted for the company and I felt like having been on my own personal and professional development journey for the past like at that point well over a decade now close to 15 years and having had my own experience doing this work in-house and as a consultant, I was like, I really feel like my work is to bring these two sides of me together to help equip these change agents, often women who are leading these programs with like every single thing in my toolbox and every single thing that I have gathered from everyone else's and like bring them together so that we can do this work together because I think so often it can feel so lonely. And when we're in these roles, we often don't feel like the people around us are our teammates. So I really wanted to create a place where people felt like they had an extended team of people who are invested in building a better future. Would you say that maybe, you know, as the student, you felt kind of like this frustration and anger, maybe that this wasn't going on. And then you're in this corporate world. Would you also say there was a sense of frustration there where you realized, hey, it takes someone like me to make that difference. Yeah, I mean, I will say as, as a woman in this world, like being in relationship with my anger has been a journey, but that's like a different podcast for a different time. <laughs> I think it was more, honestly, it was like both frustration and kind of like naively confusion of just like, why isn't this happening? Yeah. Or like, why isn't yeah. everyone working on this? And I wasn't I yet jaded. That. <laughs> there's so many things that Liz said just now that completely resonate with my own journey. I wasn't cool enough to be a journalist after college, but I would say that that period of time was really transformative to my sustainability journey. So I was born into a world where in where I lived in, in the Bay Area in California, it wasn't really a question that climate change was happening. I remember when I was seven, learning about recycling, going home, telling my parents, we need to start recycling. So yeah. that was probably baby's first climate leadership, <laughs> getting a recycling bin at home. But in college, from that same sense of powerlessness that Liz was describing, at least to me, that's how it felt of bad things are happening. Why aren't people doing something? kind of realizing that if other people aren't doing something, okay, I guess it should be me. So yeah. I would say that my climate leadership journey wasn't 
me being like, I can't wait to save the world. It was more like, oh gosh, nobody else is doing this. I guess I have to do something. And that mindset really solidified in 2018. So I was working at Accenture. And if you don't know what that is, it's a massive global tech consulting firm with 500,000 employees around the world. So in 2018, in the fall, I was working at Accenture and living in the Bay Area. And three hours north of where I lived in the town of Paradise, there was what started as a small fire, but eventually turned into California's most destructive fire. And Paradise, that's right. I didn't, I, yeah, my, actually, I I lived in the Bay Area, but my fiance and his whole family were from Paradise. And naturally, because of how fires work, the entire town, including their houses, burned down. And that was on November 8th. This whole thing unraveled when I was working at Accenture. And similar to how I felt in college, I looked around and nobody was doing anything. Everyone was on their laptops doing business as usual. You know, there were some reports of smoke and fire. And I was just so shocked because it's not like it was on the other side of the country or even a different state or even Southern California. You know, it was literally so close to where we lived and still people were not doing anything differently. And I was only a year into my corporate career. So I wasn't considering myself any sort of leader in that the grownups would recognize. But again, I spent 48 hours, you know, reaching out to people across our emergency services department, our corporate citizenship department, like very all sorts of people that were kind of like, yeah, we don't know what to do because this problem is so grassroots and corporate initiatives like Liz you probably have a lot of experience with this are more structured for the most part you know and so then I was like okay whatever I sent a proposal to all of our leaders on the west coast three of them were named John because that's how the corporate world works so I sent an email to all the Johns and they happened to be in the same meeting at the same time and my email contained a proposal of this is what I want to do I want to take a team of eight people to to an area near paradise, volunteer there because I know people in the community setting up makeshift medical clinics. I think we as a company are really well equipped to help with the organization of emergency response because a lot of the struggles they're having are tech and organizational related and consulting companies are great at that. So I made this whole case, did not think it was going to go anywhere because I was just Basically, in my mind, I was just like a random kid that just started working. And they said yes. And so that moment was a huge turning point for me. You were going to say they said no. And that's what I thought you were going to say. Yeah, right. I I thought they were going to say no because it's, again, a 500,000 person company. There's half a million people there. What you, you would think is that there's a very strong hierarchy of whose projects get funded. And a random entry level worker is usually not one of them. And so through a combination of my own, Liz used the word finagling, my own finagling and serendipity, they said yes. And that was really a really important lesson to me that leadership doesn't have to be necessarily one person with structural power. Like you can make such a huge impact being just some person. So I think that is when I really started exploring the identity of what, how can people like me that consider themselves ordinary individuals make a change in the scary world we live in? And so that was kind of the 
backdrop of what was going on as I was founding Soapbox. In our first episode this season was, you know, every, this is Jamie Alexander from Drawdown saying every job is a climate job. Yeah. And the way that I'm understanding both of your stories here is that everyone can be a leader and yes. especially around climate. A hundred percent. Yeah. And absolutely. Well, and I think that I lo- what I love about your story, Nibby, too, is I think so often, I don't know, part of, I guess, how I grew up, I think I like had for such a long time this idea that I needed to wait for someone to pick me. Yeah. And it was such a cool moment when I realized, and I've realized it so many times, like over the course of my career and my adult life of like, oh, no, I can choose myself. Yeah. That's a, such an empowering and kind of scary realization. And so true. Yeah. Cause it's like, I was always picked last on the basketball team, but I could just be the captain, right? I could be, I could be <laughs> the, I won't be picked last anymore. So little... did not make the basketball team. I think yeah. everyone under five, four. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is kind of a nosy question for you, Liz. And that is reading through your website. This caught my eye in kind of a funny way, but I thought it was something that potentially could lead into part of the message that you sent here. You started by saying something like you sent a, a sad paragraph copy pasted from something that got legal approval once upon a time. And I'm really interested, like, what did you write and, and how did that inspire the message that puts you on these main stages now? Because that that's what you're doing. Yeah. Thank you so much for that question and for catching that on the website. I think so. It was really interesting. So having had this moment of you know, feeling like it was really important to me to work in in corporate responsibility in some capacity to, you know, have this be a part of my job. So I'm actually, I'm like, ooh, there's like something really juicy here because when I was looking at the website of the organizations that I was interviewing at, one of the first things I looked at was like, what are their commitments? Like, what are they doing to be a responsible citizen? Um, and I honestly, and this, I, this wasn't like a secret when I was looking at Qualcomm's website back in 2010, so 15 years ago, there wasn't much. There wasn't much by way of like, and they actually like, I feel like were a leader at the time far and away in the work that they were doing. But in terms of like what was on their website by way of commitment to sustainability, there was a letter that had been written, I believe, by one of the like co-founders about the company's commitment to the environment. Yeah. And while initially I saw that and I was dissuaded because I was like, ooh, it doesn't like look from the website like there's a ton happening here. I also realized that if that's how it looks on the website now, how much opportunity is there to build out like a whole program here and to really tell the story of what is happening because I know about some other stuff that's like also not on the website that um, there's just a huge opportunity to actually be doing that storytelling. And so, yeah, it was wild because I know that the reason that that one letter like hung out there for so long is because like at one point in time, it got through all the lawyers. (laughs) And no one was like going to try to rock the boat and get all the lawyers on board with a new like policy and a new message. And 
a big chunk of my work over the time that I was there was, you know, not only in building out like different programs and like, you know, doing our first human rights impact assessment and working on our strategy and our goals, but also on like updating the website and making yeah. sure that <laughs> that all of the stuff that was happening was being communicated in a clear and transparent way so that our stakeholders, whether it was investors or prospective employees or suppliers or customers, could learn about all the things that were actually happening inside the company. And it just so happened that like my time there also coincided with a lot more demand for that information. I think the thing I would offer to anyone listening to this who is using those same criteria of like what is on their website to evaluate where you want to go work and make an impact that like if you're underwhelmed, that can actually be a huge sign that there is a lot of work to do that you might be able to help with. And I, I, yeah, I don't know at what point in my journey, like I kind of like had that light bulb turn on, but I think so often we think that like there's only opportunity at the organizations that already have everything out there. And in fact, if it's not out there, that there is potentially even more work that you could do. Yeah, that might be even more important, right, to be at these places. Nivi, you work a lot with a message about helping people channel their climate anxiety into positive action there at Soapbox. And you write that you do this with courage and joy. And, and I really like that. And I've had climate anxiety for a while, right? And it <laughs> took me a while to really come to grips with what to do with that so I can relate to that. I think it is courageous, actually, to get out of bed and, and do something. Yeah. So, yeah. so how do you recommend someone move on from that moment of feeling so low into doing positive? Like anyone could be a leader, like you were saying. Yeah. I think it's easy on things like podcasts and books and anything with blogs to kind of oversimplify the journey and I at risk of doing that I'll kind of give a high level overview but I do want to clarify that you know this is deeply personal and I feel that your climate journey the way that you feel about climate change is often independent enough from climate change itself and what I mean by that is yes scary things are happening but so much of the way we feel climate anxiety comes from the fact that we feel inadequate. We feel mm -hmm. like we're not doing enough. We feel like we're not surrounded by people who care. And I can say confidently that even though in the past few years, the effects of climate change around where I live has gotten worse, my climate anxiety has actually gotten better or almost disappeared completely. And part of that is, I would say in our society, because we spend so much time on work and on our work days, that line of every job as a climate job is really important. And I, I would say, you know, there's a lot of simple actions I can recommend that very definitively do make a do make a difference in your carbon footprint. So for example, cutting out flying, driving, and meat, or at least picking one area or reducing all three of those, right? That's the very simple version or choosing a green 401k. You can do all of those things and have a actual measurable impact. And that's great. But I do think there's a lot of inner work that needs to be done. And, and you know, I found those two values, courage and joy resonated with me a lot because courage is hard, right? It, you, you, you said, Eric, 
it requires courage to get out of the bed in the morning sometimes and do something. Yeah, duh. I feel I feel like joy is such an underrated emotion in any social impact or activist space because we feel like everything has to come hard one. And so the reason I say this is to answer your question of how can people move past it or move through it. Part of that is feeling your feelings. And also part of that is taking stock of what you've already done. Like if what you've already done is you have a garden or you have a basil plant or you just love going outside, that's already a great starting point. And I feel like people don't give themselves enough credit because you can say, I can say all day long, hey, take less flights or hey, like eat plant-based or whatever. But none of that is going to actually create sustained change in your own life unless you realize, wait, I love this planet so much. I love hanging out with my friends and going swimming or going skiing. And I want all of these things to keep existing. So where, like, how do I see myself as a leader? And so there, there's just so much in the climate anxiety journey that is truly your own skills of understanding how you see yourself and then also understanding how to build community around you to surround yourself with people that are thinking of similar things instead of people are like, eh, it doesn't matter anyway. Like there's a lot of, yeah, there's climate deniers, but I think the bigger problem is the bigger challenge that I've seen is people that are like, yeah, climate change is bad and it's scary, but I can't do anything about it. And that is very disempowering. So yeah, there are certain actions I recommend, but really the the biggest one is figure out what in this space, in this movement, actually makes you happy because that's going to make you keep going. Yeah, I've heard a lot from previous guests about this in a similar way and that, you know, celebrate these little things that you do, right? That's joyful. And the guest we had last week talked about naming and faming the people that are doing good work and like you two, right? So... And I'm wondering, Liz, are you also someone that suffers from climate anxiety? And, and how, do you, how do you tackle that? Similar or? Yeah, I definitely, I definitely feel climate anxiety. I think it was, I mean, I don't know. I just remember a particularly dark moment in the pandemic when my partner and I were relocating back to the Bay Area from Portland and we drove back and it was like wildfires the entire drive. And it just like really for me was this like visceral feeling of like have we missed the mark not just yeah. all together I mean it's I think yeah it's scary it's really scary to read the news on this I think the two things that I find most helpful to keep going are one I think related to the naming and faming piece like when I look around at the individuals who are dedicating their time, their resources, their careers to this work and to making a difference like in the way that they are like unique, uniquely gifted and qualified to make a difference. Like I, it's like the Mr. Rogers quote, like look for the helpers. I think when I need a reminder of like. I love Mr. Rogers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think, again, I think it can just feel so overwhelming, but I look at some of these people around me and I'm like, well, if we can't figure it out, like if they can't figure it out, if we can't figure it out, like I don't know who could. And so just looking at the individuals who are who are pouring their hearts and souls into this and then 
Also spending time in nature. I think it can be so powerful to just connect with the thing that we're working to save. And whether it's like going on a walk in my neighborhood and like noticing the butterflies or going to the redwoods and like taking a moment in the trees or my personal favorite, anything related to being next to the ocean, I think. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I love the mountains. That's where I like to go. Because this is this is what it's all for. And so I feel that if you're not seeking out that joy or that connection with the things you love doing, then I personally think it's easier to not care. Because if you, you don't love, you know, smelling the ocean breeze or going to the mountains and it's like, okay, I understand climate change. It's real and it's bad, but if you can kind of feel the grief of climate change personally, like I'm sure all of us here have, that makes such a big difference. And obviously it's a very heavy and sad feeling, but I kind of feel like, you know, this is like someone that I care about and I would do anything for them. And I don't think a lot of people have reflected on that, but you know, this, we all have this relationship with the earth. It's just about understanding that we do have it. And yeah. spending time with nature we're is part of it. a big no, part of it. Yeah. it. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And Liz, I love that your background on your wallpaper that Eric and I get to see is these bright, beautiful flowers. There's something <laughs> so magical and synchronous about that. Yeah, I was you wondering know. that your answer to my question before, Nivi, about you not having as much or any climate anxiety before and, and Liz's comments about finding that joy out in the world. I feel like I'm like with both of you there. Cause I've, that's where I am too. Like I, I, that's where I am. And I'm wondering as I'm a design educator and there are design educators listening to this show, hopefully, how would you coach someone as an educator in terms of how do they help themselves and then help the students through um, that climate anxiety and to climate action. Something that we focus on in our, so to step back up a little bit, our soapbox project journey looks different for everyone because the goal is to help you find out how you, you as a human can channel your own anxiety into action. And for the majority of people that is just using our free climate change newsletter as a resource, because every month you basically get a free mini course in your inbox of a topic and corresponding actions you can take, and you can be there for as long as you want. A lot of people do elect to join our membership community because I think a lot of us are realizing that the magic comes from being together with like-minded people. And so one really important thing that we've actually started doing only a few months ago is understanding the core competencies that, for example, I don't really suffer from climate anxiety anymore. Maybe maybe that's not an everyday answer, but for the most part, and that is because anxiety usually comes from the fear of something being out of your control. And so I realized the reason that I still feel so much rage, so much sadness, so much grief, so much sometimes despair but something that really has helped me is taking stock of my own powers and so self-efficacy is one of the very clearest skills that we teach in our six-week 
course that all our members go through when they join our community and they can take in again every quarter. So self-efficacy is one of those actual skills that I feel like anyone that wants to understand how to internalize these messages, that's a really good one. And if you don't really know how that means, what that means or how to define it, it's basically the mindset that's like, I can do this. That, that yeah. Self-efficacy is a fancy word for that. So I would say some of the things that I've understood that really proved to be a challenge on people's journeys are, number one, the sense that I'm not doing enough. And so that's where self-efficacy really comes into play. Number two, people say, I feel so isolated in my journey. So another competency we teach is community building. So yeah. I don't, like as humans, we are social creatures, but I think that gets kind of brainwashed out of us or our society is not structured as much for connection. So we teach connection as a competency. And then the third one that I like, since you asked about design educators, is the third thing that people say all the time is, I don't know how to talk about this without coming across as judgmental or preachy or hypocritical. So the third thing that we teach I'm just going to like condense a bunch of them, but it's like basically effective communication. And I think there's so much, obviously, like I could go on for hours and I'm not going to, but things like nonviolent communication, things like very basic behavioral psychology. And I actually think the design world is such a good resource. And we pull from examples like this book, The Happy City, all the time, because when you develop these core competencies and you can kind of see how the systems around you work you can change you can change not just your own mind and your own journey but for example as a design educator if you're asking these larger questions like how can we create spaces whether it's online or offline for nonviolent communication or values grounded communication i'm just throwing out examples but uh, i think it's very powerful to have people anchored in specific core competencies that build you skills in your own life. So, you know, if you're working at a tech company, this is going to help you talk to your boss about getting a raise and it's going to help you as a climate leader. And I think just identifying what those skills are has been a really good point in my own leadership journey because I, I can kind of understand, okay, why do I feel better? Oh, it's because I feel I feel a greater sense of self-efficacy that I can affect change. I feel so much more grounded in my community and I feel that I can communicate so much better and express how I'm feeling and that makes a huge difference. Yeah, I mean, I think I would just add, I mean, that was such an amazing answer. I think <laughs> <laughs> All I think I can add here is that I, I do think that Going back to this, like, I, I believe so much that every job is a climate job. And I'm also such a belief in such a big believer in using our strengths. And I think that both for like design educators and for design students, I think figuring out what it is that like you are uniquely good at and what brings you joy, like what you enjoy doing. And then figuring out how to apply what you're good at that you enjoy, like to like address like the climate crisis in some way. I think so often we get hung up on the idea that like if it doesn't have climate or sustainability, like in the job title, that like there's not an opportunity right. to make an impact. 
But I actually think you have the biggest opportunity to make an impact when you're doing the thing that you're amazing at and when you can be um when you can be one more person who's like supporting like these efforts from like wherever within an organization you happen to be. And so so yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of that is inner work, right? Figuring out what you're good at, figuring out what you love. And I think the more that like we can have educators creating the space for students to like actually do that inner work to figure out what lights us up. Like, I think we all win because like this is, I think so much of like what we focused on in communicating about climate, I think there's a lot of consensus that this has been a miss is that I think it's often like so do it can be so doom and gloom. And I think what so yeah. many of us are like craving and now finally creating is like a vision for like, like a better dream of like what our reality and our future can look like. Like we are living in someone's dream. It's just not ours. And right. that, that's true. <laughs> yeah. And, and I feel like with students, the two, the two big things that jumped out to me about that Liz was the part about looking for climate and sustainability for jobs and the opportunity that really exists in any job for them to be putting their passion into it. And I think the projects that we assign students where they are allowed to find that joy is better, right? Maybe we say it's about climate, mm. but then that little smaller part, when it's all their choice, I think it makes them work on it harder and they, and they do better on those projects. So Liz, I was going to come back to something about your website because I find your website to be pretty awesome. And you talk about a lot about women changing the world. And what have you learned about the best ways to empower women to be the change makers at work or the inspiration that they hope to be in their life? Yeah, I love this question. And I, it's funny because I feel like I like when we wrote that copy, it was like we we actually were like we forego the the pink pantsuit model of feminine leadership. And when we wrote that, we were very much channeling like. Hillary Clinton before Hillary Clinton was cool. And I also feel like, especially in 2023, like the pink pantsuit is having such a moment. Like, thank you, Barbie. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) I still need to see Barbie. I have not seen it yet. Oh, my goodness. Run, don't walk. It's it's so good. Is it? Okay. Okay. um, It's, it's, I'll go. I'll go. I can't wait. I I laughed the whole, like, the whole time. (laughs) But, yeah, I mean, I, I think, so I think what I was, what, where that comes from is that I, I was actually in a women's leadership program in my freshman year of college. And I felt like everything that I learned in that program was all about how to lead like a man. It was basically like all about like, if you think about sort of like the masculine type of leadership, that's very much like, I have all the answers and very like direct and forceful and like, to the point and to be clear, I think like we need both feminine and masculine energy. Like they both complement each other so beautifully. But I think so much of the world that we are living in now has been like so masculine energy dominant, especially when it comes to leadership for like a really long time, which is not how humans have always lived. Like this is a relatively recent phenomenon. Right. And the feminine, on the other hand, when we think about feminine energy and leadership, that's the energy of like, let's all come up with the solution together. It's the energy of like collaboration of one plus one equals five. It's the energy of like 
how can I like elevate you as a leader? Like, how can I, you know, not know all the answers and still be respected? It's just like a much softer, but I would argue equally, like, if not more powerful form of leadership. And I feel like what I'm really excited about in both the spaces that I'm creating and many of the spaces that I get to play in is that there is an increasing recognition that like, I believe this type of leadership is like what we collectively need in order to address these major social challenges like the climate crisis. Yeah, yeah Nibby, similar question to you. What have you found that has really been helpful to women in particular around their mental health and climate anxiety? And I do a lot of meditation that that, that helped me. And so I have so many questions for you here about or what I want to know about how you felt what has been empowering for for your clients? First of all, watch the Barbie movie for sure. <laughs> we need some that's laughter. One, yeah, that's one advice. No, that's why I loved it so much. It was so fun. But on a more serious note, I am really glad to see that there's been, especially since 2020, more of a focus on listening to women of color and in the climate movement, indigenous leadership. I think the people that we have seen in the mainstream have historically been historically been mostly white men and recently white well, like so many corporate citizenship and corporate social responsibility leaders are white women. And see like the challenge with not seeing roles represented at the top is sometimes you're just entirely missing the point because you're not including you're not including in your leadership what the actual world looks like, right? So I'm really excited and inspired to see people, for example, women from the global south, people from the global south, people that work in different intersections in their climate and social justice work, because something that shocks me, I mean, it both shocks me and is completely unsurprising, is how siloed we see the climate movement. For example, I get questions a lot from people being like, so do you focus on sustainability or do you talk about race and gender. And in my mind, the way I grew up in the cultural context, I grew up in, so for people that can't see my face and are only listening, I'm an Indian woman. And I also immigrated from India. So with that perspective, I just see, like, for me, it's not a question that a lot of things are interrelated. And I think the more, diff the more varied perspectives you have in the room, the easier it is for like specifically women to take care of their own empowerment journey and mental health journey because when you're looking at diverse leadership there's something so comforting about knowing that it's not just there's not just one right answer so when I grew up and I saw mostly just like men and most specifically white men leading I just kind of assumed that to lead in any space you know you or John and you wore a suit but now you know, I think like the conversations on diversity are really important to me because we say this all the time, representation matters. And the reason that representation matters so deeply is especially like there has never been a greater time in my lifetime and probably everyone's lifetime listening to this where we have needed so much creativity. When we are in a human made climate crisis, we need creative solutions. And that means that we need people that look different, that have had various experiences, whether it's race, gender, sexual, like just various experiences around the world, because this is such a 
broad question. So that that has been really helping me. Like the one, maybe not the one, but one of the positive things about social media that have helped me is Liz said this actually much earlier in the podcast, just like seeing naming and faming and seeing the people yeah. doing good work and the Mr. Rogers quote, but that has been that has been really, really big. And I'll say this one more time, even though I already said it, but when you see that kind of representation, that ties back in with the self-efficacy thing I was saying earlier, because you can feel, oh, I can do this too. I am not just a victim. I am part of the solution. I went to a sustainability conference in October and, or October, 2022, I think. And pretty much the only people of color and the only women of color represented at that conference, which was a sustainability conference, were in the brand videos on like women getting jobs from Unilever or whatever. And I just thought that was so That's deeply too common. That's too common. It's so common. And like this, I, I hope that people when they're doing these understand that like we all can be people that are helped, but most importantly, we can all be the helpers. And so when I see people that look like me or when I see people that even I would have never met through daily life, you know, like native TikTokers, like so many, just so many cool people that I'm seeing finally on social media, worlds are being opened for me where people that historically haven't been seen as a victim are like, actually, you know, we're doing so many cool things with the solution and we are all in this together. So I don't know, something about it just gives me a really deep sense of solidarity and i don't even know if that answered my question or if that answered your question it, if that it was really like... did <laughs> we'll take a quick commercial break here and then get back to the conversation where do young designers see themselves at the intersection of climate change and innovation and how can we teach that intersection in the classroom designers are problem solvers capable of imagining solutions for a more sustainable future my name is Rachel Cifarelli, and I'm part of the Climate Designers New Wave team. In the past few years, New Wave has released two reports exploring students' experiences of climate design education, or lack thereof, and what they hope to see in their classes. Now we want you, design educators, to use this research in your classrooms. And this summer, we're giving educators a chance to talk to the New Wave team directly. Twice a month, the New Wave researchers will be available to walk you through our findings, answer any questions you have, and help you implement actionable project briefs directly into your classroom. We'll also show you how to use our media kit to easily share the research with your students and how they can sign up to be a participant. Head to climatedesigners.org edu slash new wave to sign up for a call with the new wave team. Help us inform a new wave of design education, one that teaches every designer how to be a climate designer. Graphic design history is messy, it's incomplete, and it's full of overlooked, underrepresented, and ignored people and topics. Incomplete Design History podcast explores those topics and talks about those people to deepen and expand our knowledge, understanding, and interpretation of the history of graphic design. Season one and two are already available, covering women from graphic design history and BIPOC designers and design culture. Be sure to subscribe to Incomplete Design History wherever you listen to podcasts and get caught up before season three drops in the fall of 2023. I-N-C-O-M-P-L-E-T, Design History.
have to ask you both this question then, right? Because this this is now like based on what you said, right? So I I am if you cannot see me listening to this, I am I am a white man, and I am very soon going to be a, a leader next week, in fact, of a department which is predominantly women, and also congrats uh, on the leadership. Yes, thank you. Yeah, predominantly women and and definitely women of color. And so as I'm thinking about what you both said, some things concern me about like what my role can be in that sort of leadership position in terms of not only like encouraging them to do better in, in their job and in and, and, and the way that they feel best to do it. So I guess I'm kind of rambling here, but my question is, what is your advice yes, to... Uh-huh. Based on, you know, you're, you're both coaching to someone like me who is leading a predominantly group of women. And so that yeah. I'm, I'm listening. I'm not the traditional like mansplainer that you both are, would obviously be concerned about, concerned about as a leader. Well, first of all, I love that question, Eric. And the fact that you're asking the question. I'm like completely nervous act, asking this question because I'm going to no, it up somehow. Well, it's such a great question because the thing is, Riz was alluding to this, but humility is not like, and I'm I'm saying it's not a masculine trait. I'm not saying men can't be humble, but in our society, like the way a man is portrayed and supposed to be in society, as Liz said, like masculine leadership has traditionally been shown off as I know all the answers and you should right. follow me. So right. the fact that you're asking this question is really important because like, just because that's how masculine leadership is doesn't mean all men want to be like that or are like that. So I think we just have to be conscious about redefining leadership in a way that means introverts can lead, women can lead, children can lead. Like it doesn't have to be about seniority. So that's one part of it. But more specifically to the question that you were asking, you know, There's a lot of differences between performative leadership and structural leadership. And I also think that well-intentioned leaders, especially men, forget how many structural advantages they have. So, for example, a lot of women are offered mentorship when what they actually need is funding or financial support or a promotion or a title change. And so, like, actively listening, but also understanding for your department the right questions to ask. because. You know, I am sure when you're working with a lot of women that are faculty at a school, like these are already probably great leaders who will tell you what's on their mind if you're listening and prepared to take that in. I'm not concerned for you because you're like asking the right questions. And I think I'm just going to end with saying, like, I just hate the, the cancel culture narrative. I don't think in our daily lives we're going around canceling our friends and our coworkers. I just think it's so overblown and, you know, it takes courage to be humble and it takes courage to be like, Hey, is this like the right way of leading you or what? But if you're taking a more collaborative approach, which is what you're doing right now, that already makes a huge difference. And (laughs) this might sound, this might sound bad, but like, honestly, for so many women and Liz, I'm not going to speak for you, but for so many women, the bar is kind of on the floor. Like we've had so many situations with toxic male coworkers. And so for me, I feel like I feel like as long as 
the person I'm working with, whether it's a man or a woman or anyone else, as long as they're listening and they're treating me as a human and they're understanding that I have strengths and they're helping me build those strengths, like anything I would ask from a boss is that you understand what makes me a happy human being and you give me the type of work that aligns with that. And if I bring up something that's on my mind that you're listening and not getting defensive, but I think that applies to everyone. It's not just a man specific thing. Yeah. Thank you. Totally. Yeah. I guess that was such a great answer, but I think all, all I can add here are two things. So one, I think just building off of what Nimi said, I think asking questions and actually listening to the answers I think it's like maybe yeah (laughs) it sounds it can sound so so basic but I think you know so often like leader again I, I just can't stress this enough leadership isn't that like you need to have all the answers it's like how can you consult the people around you above you below you around you about like what's important to them and how can you like synthesize and advocate for the people like synthesize what you're hearing and advocate for the people around you especially the people who have perhaps not historically had an advocate at that Mm -hmm. level and then the other thing I'll just name as a white woman I think a lot of my own work on dismantling like white supremacy and systemic racism is like has really been around like being willing to not be perfect all the time and Mm -hmm. and getting comfortable and feeling like it's more important to like try to do the right thing and maybe get feedback and input that there's a better way to do it or there's more that I could do but to not not do anything out of fear of not being perfect yeah and so I, that would be what I would offer as like, I know that's my growth edge. I know that's a growth edge for a lot of white women. And I imagine for white men who also want, like, want to do this work and want to show up and go beyond allyship as well as being willing to like take your best stab at whatever it is yeah. and learn as you go, but not feel like it has to be perfect before you start. Well, I mean, thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. And I'd love to report back on on how I do there, but I was wondering, maybe in in connection to that, then is who do you feel is doing a really good job in this sort of leadership world, and uh, doesn't have to be connected to climate, but but it could. The the two, I guess I'll name three thought leaders, maybe that like I've really been admiring. If people listening are looking for people to follow to like feel inspired, and these aren't probably not they're not conventionally people you might consider like climate leaders i'm going to trust nivy might have even more like climate e recommendations but yeah the three that come to mind for me are adrian marie brown yes (laughs) (laughs) oh my goodness emergent strategy is brilliant i've like i don't know if i've ever like i just have like folded down every page in the book kind of thing it's so good it's so good yeah so good and then also kind of like maybe unsuspectingly I've been just so like can't stop talking about Pooja Lakshmi's book Real Self-Care because I do feel like 
actual self-care and boundaries yeah. and knowing our values are like just such an important part of being able to like show up for this work from a resourced place. And then I'd be remiss not to name like my favorite person to follow on LinkedIn is Allison Taylor, who is like continuously sharing, I think like hot takes on what is happening like in the ESG <laughs> world and like women's leadership and like just corporate, like more broadly. So if you're looking for like a really refreshing perspective on what's happening on the corporate side of things, would recommend checking her out as well. Amazing. My emergent strategy is so great. I don't know if the writing sells for everyone, but if you are not a person, I would at least look up the concept. I am a very, very, very avid reader of books. So one, if you wanted to see who to follow on social media, like you can definitely my I have all my public accounts at Nivia Chanta and I'm probably following a bunch of really cool people. Off the top of my head, the person I probably keep up with the most is Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson. Yeah. Uh, I also follow, you know, the Leah, I think Thomas, the intersectional environment. And, <laughs> yeah. And just like get a lot of accounts and recommendations from there. But I will say that social media is actually not where I spend much of my time. And as I said in the beginning, this whole climate journey is so linked to your own journey as a human. And so for me, some of the most life-changing things are this already, but nonviolent communication. The book is great. I would recommend it to every single person on this earth to read. And I think that's also really effective for if you're a stressed out, overwhelmed, anxious person and you are scared about the climate crisis, it's not going to work if you're like, hey, friend, why are you driving a car? Like, why don't you walk 10 miles or whatever? So nonviolent communication, there's this book called Super Better by Jane McGonigal, also not specifically climate focused, but it's all about how, so she's been a video game designer and how those principles can basically help you live your best life. And I think so much of that is relevant to my whole approach on joy. And she just did a much better job at articulating scientifically why that matters. And then the last one, mostly because... Liz brought up the whole self-care thing. So I'm seeing that I'm like zero for three on recommending actual climate books. <laughs> <laughs> There's this book called The Myth of Normal, and it's all about trauma. And yeah, I'm like, Nivi, why are you like recommending such a dejecting book after talking about joy? But <laughs> that was such a important book that I've recently read about how our society has created structures that mess us up and traumatize us. And I think as I'm going on my own climate journey, my own mental health journey, and seeing how all these things are connected, understanding that trauma doesn't mean you have to have been in a war or you have to have been abused as a child or any of those really horrible things. And seeing that there are a lot of micro things that happen on a daily basis. It was a little of a heavy read, but if you're if you're really looking to kind of like redefine trauma and your relationship with systems, I thought that was really important. And I'll just say one last thing. Anyone in the All We Can Save anthology that features poets, artists, you know, speakers, actresses, scientists, all sorts of people. And I'll end with that because I just think that 
leadership traditionally has come from things like self-help books, which I've kind of recommended, but the places that people can find so much inspiration is art and music and things that actually move you. And there's like a rapper who's so funny called Gila the Earth. She yeah. dresses up as a globe <laughs> and she has. So like those kinds of things are just everywhere and like seeing what clicks in your mind. So Yeah. Well I have okay. to I have to agree that I've had trauma from bad leaders, especially yeah. at work. Yeah. Right. And that's why I asked you to that question because I would hate it, right? If I was I will be a leader. And I became what gave me trauma in the first place, right? I don't think I would, but I mean, I learned from that, but still, right? It's uh, trauma can happen anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. There, there, Kim Scott, who wrote Radical Candor, also wrote a book called Just Work. And I thought that was a very good kind of how to make a fair workplace, like how to be a fair leader. And she connects all of these different race, gender, social issues kinds of things in it. So I think that's like a good leadership book for our times as well. Yeah. Well, what's keeping you both hopeful right now when it comes to women in leadership roles around climate or just what's going on in the world in general? I'm happy to take this first. I actually was like, oh yeah, we we talked about resources, but we didn't talk about like the future and like what we what we want to see. I mean, I know I, I already mentioned that I do think when I look at the humans who are working on this, I, I, that makes me feel hopeful. I think a few other things that have recently given me like some glimmers of hope, the Barbie movie. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, theme, yes. The, the I think theme, we have to see that. Yeah. The theme of today's conversation. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm like seeing some really, really cool stuff happening in like the women led venture capital space. I am like loving seeing more like funds that are like led by women targeting things like sustainable food systems, targeting things like supporting black founded businesses, getting ones that are working to get more women to invest in venture. I find that really exciting because money is like a powerful force in a capitalist world. And that's what mm-hmm. we're still currently living in. But I think like, I, you know, I, I said some, this earlier that, I, you know, we are we are living in someone's dream. And I think that what makes me really hopeful about the future is the fact that I think there are a lot of people now more than ever who are in many ways, like collectively, like dreaming about what a better future can look like and that we have some really smart, creative, brilliant, amazing people working on like how we make that dream more attractive and compelling Mm -hmm. and like how we make more people desire that dream and that reality than the one that we're living in now. And I, it's like a really hard question of like, how do we make that the dominant frame but I feel cautiously optimistic that I think in the next like five or 10 years, it will be. That's good to Yay. hear. Yeah. I'm excited yeah. for that. <laughs> I love the, like this, the emergence of the new dream and I'm definitely yeah. feeling it. And Grace Lee Boggs, who's an activist, calls it the great turning. And something that I had this epiphany that sometimes sounds silly and sometimes sounds really profound, but Basically that all I want to do is to live my best life on this best planet with my best friends because 
I wouldn't say I am passionate about solving climate change. I just need that to happen if I'm going to live a good life. And so what gave me hope is like, oh, you know, we all want this. Like, we don't want to live on this planet and have a good life. And the more I start to do things. So I live pretty much less than a 10 minute walk from like five to 15 of my friends. So I'm I'm here like living out this new dream. I live in a walkable part of Seattle. You know, I can walk and bike everywhere. I can go be in nature whenever I want. I have a great community. And so seeing that you don't need some massive shift in society to have these things has been amazing. Mm. The other thing that's been cool and sometimes cool, sometimes depressing is the de- the technological advancements that we need to solve climate change are already here. And right. it is a question of do we have enough human will on some days that bums me out, but mostly it gives me a lot of hope. So those are those are two really big things that I would say like give me a lot of hope. And then the last one, which again, on some days it's really scary, but the the it's kind of liberating to know that you don't we don't know what's gonna happen. Right now we are on a trajectory to, you know, like keep being doomed or whatever but we don't know that that's going to happen you know if you know anything about statistics right. is that yeah the future's the forecasting, not written yes exactly the future's not written and i think that that thought was for a long time the cause of my climate anxiety or one cause and now that i've surrounded myself with such an amazing community that cares about making the world better making each other's lives better having fun so it's not just about being a climate change person or an activist right it's surrounding yourself with good people that are generous and their generosity shows in relationships with themselves and with the earth and so surrounding myself with that kind of community is like okay the future is unknown and guess what that's such a good thing because if people are like the people i'm hanging out with only good things can happen might take a little bit of turnaround time to reverse this damage but yeah i think for me that's now a very liberating thought that yeah. we don't know what's going to happen. Well, I can tell you're both very good at your coaching jobs because I want to have you two as part of my community. <laughs> like you just discussed, I mean, the stuff that you're doing takes a lot of time and effort and care. And you both left probably pretty high paying jobs from what, from what it yeah. sounds like miss that a little bit but yeah. not enough to ever go back i'll go back to that you both left <laughs> just the really paid, high the paying jobs. Six day <laughs> yeah <laughs> to do this which is scary but also like this is what you care about right and it's and i've never been happy. like i was just so anxious so like still the ick in my corporate job you know yeah, it's for no, some people yeah. it wasn't like i had it too then it's great it's like great and scary being in control of your own destiny in a lot of ways and i do miss my miss my paycheck but i would not trade it for my it's so worth like i probably would save so much money on therapy and stuff now like i have untraumatized myself that's good that's good yeah Mm -hmm. i mean you're both like essentially like how i viewed it when i was first meeting you was that in the work that you do you're also role model for the people you're working with right because you're doing what what you're telling, talking about with them. 
I feel yeah. like that's yeah. <laughs> so much of my own journey as a community leader is like, how do we show up imperfectly and like yeah. also trust that that's enough? Yeah. I feel like Liz and I both looked at each other and hopefully, but also maybe a lot of behind yeah. the scenes there. You know, but I mean, when they see you, they they see people who are doing what they love to do, right? And helping We're others. We're trying our best. And there's really a lot to be said for trying your best. No, yeah. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this brings us back to educators. And then my, my last question for you, and that is we're trying our best too. You know, we have, <laughs> I have to say like mental health has been one of the toughest things I've had to deal with as an educator for my students in terms of how much more mental health issues have come up even before the pandemic. Right. And that, that has made it even worse. And I do my best with that. I'm not a trained professional in that. I, I reach out for help when I need it. So we're trying our best as, as educators. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in my last question, I'm I, wondering if you would uh, switch roles with me, you know, for a moment and you're, you're teaching a, a design class. What, what would you ask them to do? I couldn't answer that first because this has been actually on my mind a lot is I just mentioned Super Better. The same author, Jane McGonigal, has a book called Imaginable, and it's all about futures thinking and all of these scenarios that help you. I'm definitely butchering the explanation, but definitely help you plan for the future. But also a lot of it is understanding the mindset that you'll be in. So if I was a teacher, I actually did teach a summer camp for five years for kids doing design. Thinking. Yeah, actually, I don't know. I forgot to say that. I, I never think about that anymore. But anyway, I would I would really want to zoom out as much as possible and do some sort of exercise that like truly confront has people confront the life that they want to live in. So maybe something like designing the kind of life you would want to live in if you were born a hundred yeah. years later. That's because awesome. that overcomes that overcomes the lock-in of being like, oh, nothing can change in the next 10 years. And Whenever I ask, I ask kids this question a lot of like designing the future, but you know, in 2200 or whatever, and seeing the creativity that comes out of that. And then if you're able to take it at the next level further for small class sizes, we had like pitch competitions in my university where we were able to actually ask these types of questions and execute on them. And this was more than five years ago and a program that I started is still running now because some faculty member was able to get funding for like some kids, I mean kids, some like university students projects. So if you're able to connect this idea of designing your future, making it as tangible as possible, yeah. having people think through the pros and cons and the situations and the emergencies and all that. And if there's any way to actually give students like the next level of what if you like what if you could make a small percent of this happen today that not only makes people makes the students like feel empowered but that could also yield true lasting change yeah. for the world yeah. things happen and i've seen that yeah things happen so that's what that's what i would say love the futures thinking like scenario exercises so much totally i actually feel like in a similar vein doing some like future scenarios work has been like some of the most fun I've ever gotten to do in my career. And I think I'm also a big fan of Deb Debbie Millman. 
her homework assignment for her students in mine classes of like, which is just simple, like write about a day in your life 10 years from today in as much detail as possible. There are a couple reasons that I've had like clients where that has just like been the first step of many and like really uncovering like what the life is that they want to design. Also, I think it can be like a powerful manifestation tool if you're into that sort of thing. But the other other piece, and I guess I would maybe even go closer term, I feel like 10 years is like kind of fun because it's like we probably can't imagine all that's possible to change in 10 years, but it is something we'll definitely get to see and experience in our lifetimes. I would invite from a like visual creative design perspective, like I would want students to like dream the future that they would like to see in 10 years and like what does the city that you live in look like feel like like what does what does a moment from like your commute look like what does your transportation look like what like I mean I could go on and on what do buildings look like what does your food look like like what do all of these things look and feel like and to actually if they could get down like in like a multimedia or like down on paper like a visual representation that they can really like feel I think that would like be the assignment I would want to give because it would one it would selfishly inspire me, and I also think it would like really like give everyone like permission to really imagine like the world that they want to live in as part of their coursework. And so we actually do something pretty much exactly like that in our six week climate solutions course. And then a few weeks ago, I went to this. A design session put on by the city of Seattle, where I live, about reimagining this whole chaotic street. And they had that exercise too. And it was so cool to see this taken into an actual context where decisions are being made. And it was like that to me, it was like, okay, that these visualization exercises are so important. And guess what? Actual cities are using the same methodology to make decisions. So we are on the right track. You're in this conversation. Yes. And and I was going to say, uh, because I do not have a last assignment for my class this semester, <laughs> I'm going to do this. I'm going to use your ideas for the students and see how it goes. And I might have, since I want you to be continually part of my community here, I'm going to reach back out to you. That's your <laughs> sweet for, for your guidance on this or maybe showing up to my class. I don't know. Virtually. Wait, Eric, can I say one more thing about this assignment? Yes. Yeah, please. So okay. My favorite thing about this would be to see if you made it as flexible as possible because just I can't even imagine. Students are so creative, especially if they haven't gotten the like corporate world brainwashing yet. Like people, I've just seen every time when you're giving people this structure, but also a prompt. Like I can't wait to see, you know, what kind of new 3D design or like essay or documentary. People just come up with so much. And I would love to see just the reiteration that this can look like anything. It just has to answer the prompt and definitely send them to us because I can't wait. I love the Imagine 2200 contest that Chris puts on every year. So that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I enter. I enter. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Well, we are running out of time here. I'm going a little bit over for what I told you I would. So I apologize. I guess as the conversation was too good and um, I'm getting a little sappy because it's the last episode of the, of this season. And I felt like you two were the, you were the perfect way to wrap it up, which was just about 
the solutions are here. You need to have, you're a leader and go do it. Right. And I really appreciate you too and what you're doing. Thank you so much, Liz and Eric. This was, this was awesome. What a great way to spend my whatever day of the week. It is. Yeah, I think it's Monday. No way. Is it Tuesday? <laughs> That's it's something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank yeah. you both so much. I so appreciate being invited to be part of this conversation and Maybe every time I talk to you, it's like such a ray of sunshine in my day. I just am feeling so energized and inspired and really appreciate the opportunity. Same, same. If you're listening and also feeling energized and inspired, where can we find each of you online so they can go continue to see more of your work? Liz, where can we find you online again? Again, my website is girlsclubcollective.co. Scroll down to the bottom of the homepage and sign up for the monthly meditation. It is a love note I write every month from Ooh. my heart to your inbox. And this month is going to be all about imagining a better world. So I'm very on, on brand for this conversation. I'm on social media and other spots too, but the website's the best place to start. Mine is soapboxproject.org. People always... In my, in my welcome email, I'm like, right back to this email. People always think I'm a robot, but no, I am a real human sending you climate action plans, sometimes with completely unhinged behind the scenes content of my personal life, but that's just how it is sometimes. So if you are looking for a way to take action with a fellow imperfect human and you need a starting point, you can always find us at soapboxproject.org and grab one of our copies of our lovingly named change letters for your own inbox. All right. I will. Thank you so much, both of you. And I really appreciate your time. This podcast is co-produced by Bianca Sandico and me. A big special thanks to Ellen Keith Shaw and Christine Pilot for their gorgeous work on our new branding, Batul Rashik and Mark O'Brien for their continued design help, Brandy Nichols and Michelle Wynn for their strategic guidance and always supporting me on this podcast. If you enjoy the work we all do here and you have a spare minute or two, we would truly appreciate it if you left a rating and review over at Apple Podcasts. The more folks that review our program, the higher the algorithm pushes up Climify in the search results. And in turn, the more likely we all can learn how to become climate designers.